A quick note about today's show, our guest Rob had some microphone issues, so part of today's episode was lost. So if you don't hear Rob describe the fall and the covenant of works, you know why. But there is a place you can find all of what Rob has to say about covenant theology, and it is in his book, Identifying the Seed. And you know what? I think we're going to give away some copies. If you are a top-tier patron, just so you know, we are sending everyone one of these books. If you're in our second tier, we're going to randomly pick two of you, and even in our first tier, for the low, low price of $3 a month, we are going to pick a winner. If you join patron right now, you can get access to any of these levels. Moreover, we want podcast reviews. In fact, I think we need some. So every single person who reviews the podcast and sends us their address will be getting a sticker. And then at the end of every month, for the next month or two, we are going to send one of you a copy of Rob's book. So there are a lot of ways to win. We just want to make sure this content gets out there. So let's go to the episode. This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed. And just like the YRR, I, your host, Matt, sometimes stand corrected. I am joined by Pastor Michael, uh, holding a baby and full of good takes. Baby broadcasting, and uh, it's the good life. It's going well. Tonight, we are doing something important. We are discussing an essential of Reformed theology as Michael and I understand Reformed theology, which is covenant theology. And to do that, we are joined by the friend of the show from the Reform Forum, Rob McKenzie. Rob, welcome back to Restless. Thank you. It is great to be here as always. Rob, uh, we were we just uh, had you on earlier this week for a special episode, but will you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Reform Forum hopes to do with its publishing arm, as you are uh, involved with that? Absolutely. Well, um, I'm the director of marketing and publishing, so it's my job to put together our books and kind of direct what, what we're going to be putting out. Uh, we're going to be, soon, we're going to be putting out a book by Lane Tipton on the Trinitarian theology of uh, Cornelius Van Til. We have... Uh, a biblical history of uh, regeneration that will be coming out hopefully by the end of the year. That is by uh, uh, Scott Wright, who's a PCA mm-hmm. pastor in Ohio. That's great. And we have several, right now I'm working on about 14 books. Um, wow. We have a, a book by Jim Cassidy on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where he just kind of goes through each uh, question and answer and just gives a, a little brief uh, pastoral kind of devotional summary of that. And uh, we also have classes. That's the Reform Forum. Uh, we do these classes. So they're free. Anybody can come and sign up. But they, you do sign up. You sit through the classes. You take quizzes. Uh, it's just uh, to help you work through the material. But we have classes on, um, again, the Shorter Catechism, um, the, the understanding of a lot of uh, Ben Till classes. We're trying to keep the thought of old Princeton, uh, your heart is boss, E.B. Warfield, um, and that how that's been carried on in people like Ben Till and Machen, trying to keep that alive. And while, because I am still in seminary, I cannot speak for the Reformed Forum classes myself. My sister, 
who is now the member of a PCA church, has taken some and really? has very much appreciated them. And so uh, I will on on her endorsement uh, fully endorse the classes. And so uh, I'm gonna li- we'll post a link in our show notes to the Reform Forums classes. Rob is also a podcaster, but tonight we're having him on because he is a writer, a writer of a book we plan on giving away to our patrons, details upcoming, and those who join our Patreon. So, Rob, will you tell us a little bit about uh, your first book uh, and, um, and why we're having you on tonight to talk a little bit about covenant theology and dispensationalism? Well, uh, thanks. My, my book is called Identifying the Seed, and it came out a few years ago. It, what I do is I explain covenant theology. Here's what covenant theology teaches. The, the, the main, the, the, the most popular understanding of covenant theology. And I kind of show how dispensationalists hear that and how they react to it and where maybe they misunderstand covenant theology and why they misunderstand it. Uh, then in the second half of the book, I take dispensationalism and I lay that out and say, this is what dispensationalism teaches. I kind of go through the history of dispensationalism from uh, classical to the Ryrie version to more progressive style. Um, I show the nuances, where they change, why they change, what they're trying to fix within the system. And then I explained uh, how people who have an understanding of covenant theology react. How do they hear dispensationalism? What is that saying to them? I try to bring out misunderstandings that both sides might have, to uh, such as in covenant theology, um, Dispensationalists often think that that we teach what's called replacement theology, which we don't. Uh, and I try to under, I, I try to help covenant people understand why they think that, and then I try to help dispensationalists understand why we don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you'll find the book very helpful if you want to hear uh, Michael and I talk through the book specifically. I will also link to the episode where. We talk through the book and it's a great one. Michael, do you want to say anything about the book before we uh, go into uh, kind of how I think we're going to structure uh, this episode? Yeah, it was it was a great read. We've had people um, from the episodes that we did both the interview and then uh, as we talked through some of these things, uh, we had people uh, reach out to us afterward and say, oh, I got the book. It was really helpful. Like I, it really you know helped me understand these things better. So um, so we know that it's been helping some folks that listen to us and uh, grateful that that you came on before and glad to dive into it a bit more. And, and, and while we are YRR, so we are unfamiliar with people who are raised Presbyterian or raised in the reform tradition. I mean, we've heard from them saying, Oh, wow. I, I, I never really met or couldn't really believe anyone uh, thought these things about dispensationalism, which of course, to Michael and I, who we <laughs> just commented online today saying, well, we live in a place where no one knows what Presbyterian means. Or reformed means, or the Westminster, what that is, right? They're, you know, those things are totally foreign uh, to to where we are here. And so tonight, we want to help people take maybe a further step in understanding reform uh, theology, specifically covenant theology and dispensationalism. And I think Rob has just done a, such a great job in service to people in helping them understand both. And since we've gotten requests to do this tonight, I think we're going to have Rob explain the uh, narrative of scripture as viewed through covenant theology and as viewed through dispensationalism. Because I think um, this might be a really helpful way for a person to understand uh, both views 
and understand what we mean when we say covenant theology. Rob, would you do you think this is a pretty fair way to frame it, that these are two ways of understanding the story of the Bible or redemptive history? Yes. Yeah, I think they both sides definitely have a distinct and very different way that they view how Scripture is uh, broken up, how why God does what he does in certain books of the Bible or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The old dispensation or a different dispensation. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's interesting having because I grew up dispensational. I went through college as dispensational, then I became reformed. So I've seen it from both sides, and the the change in my own understanding. And if you talk to people who have become reformed from dispensationalism, they'll say the same thing: that Scripture in and of itself just opens up, mm. so that you see it as more of an organic whole than you see it as this this section here and this section here and this section here and that god himself is working very differently in these sections mm. Mm. michael you're nodding your head yeah i think that's such a helpful way to put it um i think one of the benefits that so many people uh get when they come to an understanding of covenant theology is i can read the whole bible and it yeah. And it matters and it, it speaks to who God continues to be and how he continues to act and work. And, and it like, it is a benefit. And obviously we'd want to say there are maybe different ways you'd interpret certain portions of scripture, but nonetheless, it gives you uh, the ability to say the whole of the scripture is for us now, you know, the, the whole of it is for us now in a way that, that I don't think it, you can as easily say in a different system. Yeah. So the reason I, one of the reasons I, I realized how important this was is I, as I often am, uh, I was explaining um, covenant theology to someone who's completely unfamiliar with it, as I said, as I'm often doing with uh, F parts of the Reformed faith. And they were very familiar with the dispensational system. And they, after I was explaining it for a while, they looked at me and they said, how is this any different than dispensationalism? And now two things could be very true at once. One, I'm very bad at this. This And this is something... Uh, that's very possible. But two, what I realized, what actually I think all they were able to hear is me saying, I'm, I'm giving, I structure redemptive history, right? Mm -hmm. I have a structure. Redemptive history is moving through. And I think they realized that they were so in the dispensationalist view that any idea of the structure of redemptive history that, oh, that must just be what I'm saying. Right. Um, yeah. And, and we, and we, I was able to break up, right. I was able to be like, well, no, I would say this. And you know, those, you know, then I was able to get a little bit of the, a little bit of the shock, but yeah, it was, it was very interesting uh, in, in that discussion. And so I just thought this would probably be very helpful in helping people understand covenant theology even more. Let's, let's stay on yeah. this, this covenant view for a little yeah. bit more, get a little, a few more specifics. I think that's a, an X, a really good overview before we go to dispensationalists. So God uh, actualizes that salvation promised to Adam after his failure through covenants, right? That's why we call this yes. what we're doing here, covenant theology. So tell us about how God actualizes what will be true in Revelation 22 uh, through, through maybe you would use the term progressive covenants or, or however you want to put it. Well, I would say that... that... Genesis 3, covenant theology would teach that in Genesis 3.15, we have the, the announcement of the covenant of grace. 
And that covenant of grace is going to be an overarching covenant. So while it's, it's announced there and it, it's present and it exists, we see it played out differently throughout scripture. Mm. It's the same covenant, but these other covenants that are underneath it, we often talk about this as like an umbrella, and these other covenants under, underneath it are, are teaching us about what this covenant of grace is. And so the Abrahamic covenant, um, we, we, we see the covenant of grace given uh, to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant where he's promised that he will be the father of many nations, that a people, great nation will come from him. He will, he will give, uh, his people will be given the land that he's been given, that he's wandering in. Um, his name will be named great. Kings will come from him. And we see, um, we know that that's going to produce the promise as we, we see that Isaac is, is called the promised child and, he's, and uh, Abraham receives him. But through him, through his lineage, we have Christ. So when Christ comes, we have, um, he's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in his death, burial, and resurrection. But before that, we have his people that are now a nation that um, are given the Mosaic Covenant. And there's, there's a couple aspects to the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant of grace is it's part of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace runs right through it. And we see that uh, pictured in uh, the looking forward to Christ who would come the Abrahamic. The nation itself was given promises within this covenant. So you have typological promises that are given and typological um, uh, typological acts that they are to do, such as the sacrificial system points to Christ. Uh, even even the, the feast points to Christ. The day of uh, the Jubilee points to Christ. Everything points to Christ. But the nation itself is, is given this, uh, this is how you would live as the typological people of God. If you keep my covenant, you keep these, this law that's given to you, you keep the blessings. They immediately started out with the blessings. But then at some point, because of the they lose the blessings. But the Abrahamic, or the, the covenant of grace is, is there. And that's why the people are brought back from Babylon. They're brought back because the covenant of grace is still in effect. The covenant that God made with Abraham is going to be fulfilled. You know, Abraham was put to sleep when the covenant was made. God walked down the middle of severed animals saying, if I break this covenant, let what happened to these, these animals happen to me. Abraham was asleep. So this covenant, there's no way this covenant was never going to be fulfilled because God himself is the one making the promise. So we're, we're brought from the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, we're brought, we, we go through that to Christ and through, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through his life lived perfectly. In his resurrection, the New Covenant is sealed. It is done. And it comes in power at the time of Pentecost. We today are in that New Covenant, but we are being we are being brought to the place that final day where we will stand in judgment with our Lord. We will stand and we will judge all those who are still guilty of the covenant of works. We're back in the garden 
where Adam and Eve were given the covenant of works and Adam, as our federal head, broke it. We are all guilty of that. So all those who are in Christ are in the new covenant or the covenant of grace. All those who are not in Christ are still found guilty and judged of the covenant of works. At the final day or after the final day, new heavens and new earth is when we, all of us, we enter into that rest that we were that God entered into. We enter into that rest completely, and the curse, of course, is lifted. Michael, I'll let you uh, add in something before we go to the dispensationalist view. But I want to I want to make sure we ask two questions that I think people again I think people are attracted to covenant theology because what it sounds like Rob just shared is the gospel. <laughs> that's what people like, and that's what that's what people like. But let me ask about, you know, I think there are two aspects when people hear covenant theology that um, that kind of are suspicious. So these are all um, under, we'll use your term, under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. Um, one way I try and help people understand this is that they all are part of the same promise. And, um, and I think old Palmer Robertson says it well, that it is the promise that I will be a God to you and you will be my people, right? That this, this is the promise. Rob, is, 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 is that a good way of understanding how these can all, all of these covenants, even though they are different, uh, the Moses is temporary, right? Christ's, they're pointing to Christ. Obviously Christ's, the new covenant is greater. Is this, is this a good way to think about how they're all under this umbrella? That God will keep his promise? Yeah, that, that they all share in the same fundamental gracious promise you know yeah. that we see made to abraham right well and we see it originally with adam and eve in genesis three fifteen, mm. and and so the abrahamic covenant is, is not um it's it's not other than what happens in genesis 3, it's not doing it's god is not going to do something different with abraham than he's going to that he's already promised abraham to adam and eve He's, we're understanding it more, what God is going to do. We're, we're giving more specific details about what God is going to do. It's, it's, it's a restoration rather than kind of like a, you know, a totally, a kind of a new invention. Um, and, and, and I think the second thing people, when they hear this, is go, it sounds like uh, you don't think there's really much different between the new and old covenant, right? This is the, this is the secondary problem so rob do you, you know comment on this kind of question what what is new what is old you know this is a um this you know right I, you know i i i think that a lot of us i certainly had probably a pretty radically new what i would call a radically new new covenant right there was no holy spirit in the old testament for the people of god right they were saved a different way right these were all these were all the kinds of things though i was not aware of the where the system I was where these things came from, you know, this is why a lot of this was a shock to me when I learned it. So, how would you explain the the newness compared to the old covenant? Well, the the old covenant is type and shadow. It is pointing to the reality that is Christ. The new covenant is fulfillment. Uh, I mean, in one sense, you can think of it as you're you're going to go to on vacation. You're going to go to um, New Zealand, and you see pictures of New Zealand, and you 
uh, hear stories of New Zealand and you see etchings and drawings of New Zealand, well, those are representatives of a reality. But when you go to the reality, well, the, the pictures and drawings and stories that you've heard mean they, they fade away. Mm. You're in the reality now. You're actually there. And so the Old Covenant points to Christ, and we shouldn't uh, downplay their importance. But Christ himself, the, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the mosaic is pointing to that fulfillment. Mm. God promised he would fulfill it. It's going to happen. And these are all the ways in this covenant that we're, we're, we're typifying what's going to happen. And so when Christ comes and he fulfills through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, it, it makes, as he, again, as Hebrews says, it fades away. And the new covenant is the, the reality that we always looked for. Yeah. So, Michael, before we go to uh, an alternative reading of the Bible's history and God's purpose in it, do you want to add, do you want to add anything to what Rob said? Um, I, I don't know that I'm adding anything. Um, I think that that's really helpful. And like we said before, just the, the ability through this understanding to see the whole of scripture as an organic whole, I think is, is uh, really beneficial. And you can see God administering his grace to his people throughout the pages of scripture, right? It's, it's everywhere. Um, it's, it's not as though um, those in Moses day had no access to the grace of God, but you see it all over the place. I lately, I've been thinking about uh, this um, probably because we're uh, in Romans and when uh, in Romans 10, uh, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30, speaking of the gospel, which uh, people can uh, simply believe that it's, it's been uh, brought the, the good news has been brought in the death, resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, in Deuteronomy 30, uh, this is where, you know, uh, Moses has kind of given the law a second time to the people before they enter into the promised land. And so this is a very, I mean, this is a, you know, this is law section, right? This is, this is old covenant. This, you know, you wouldn't expect any, anything like grace here. And yet, uh, you know, he, he says, see, I've set before you today, life and good death and evil. And then he says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you today by loving the Lord, your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and statutes, here's all the things that are going to happen for you. You know, here's all the ways that God is going to, uh, you know, bless you because of that. Um, if you don't, if you disobey, here's all the ways that, you know, it's going to go poorly for you. And then he ends by saying, therefore, uh, choose life. This day, choose life uh, that you and your offspring may live. And I think the way that the apostles pick this up in the New Testament, also just as you read it, there's a way in which, uh, you know, Moses is speaking of the law and what it looks like to be obedient to the law. But also he says, right now, um, you don't have to go far away. The word of God is right here for you and you can choose life today. Uh, it has been brought near to you uh, by God. And there's, there's just uh, this kind of idea that just runs throughout the scripture, um, the grace of God being administered to his people, um, both in the old and the new. Uh, now, uh, I know we we did go over this, but I do think that uh, when we talk about the new covenant too, 
um, sometimes a lot of weight is placed upon, you know, the fact, well, there, this has to be wildly different than everything that came before it uh, in every way because it's new, right? Uh, it's, it, it says new and new, you know, new means uh, completely different, completely uh, different than that, which is old. But if you look at the promises uh, given for the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, uh, what you'll find is you'll find many of these things being worked out even in the old covenant, right? The idea of having the law written on your heart. The, a lot of these, a lot of these portions of the new covenant, uh, these these promises, they're they're not new in that they are radical, radically different from what God has already been doing, but they are a greater fulfillment, right? They are this this is this is uh, the the picture uh, that we only had a shadow of before. This is, this is the whole, you know, this is, this is the fullness in a sense um, in the new covenant. And so I think that's, you know, just an important point to reiterate once again. And, and as you get into, and the reason Michael and I say, and, and I know Rob agrees, covenant theology is essential to any reform theology that is worth defining is because covenant theology is, is the lens by which and you I mean you heard probably all of these at least touched on in Rob's answer how we explain the atonement how we explain how we're saved how we explain assurance of salvation it influences how we explain the sacraments the continuity of the whole scriptures even our understanding of the Christian life and so that's why we put this as one of the things we say is essential to reform theology and often was not explained that way in the YRR and I think our dispensationalist friends see uh, the difference in, in pretty stark terms as well, right? That their view is pretty essential to the Christian life. And so, Rob, um, I guess uh, start over. <laughs> start over with the beginning and uh, take us through God's purpose via uh, how our, our dispensationalist friends would explain it. Well, I think... Um, just again, going back to kind of what Michael was saying, where where we see this connectivity in covenant theology, um, they they definitely put a strong emphasis on scripture in and of itself being in these dispensations as being very distinct, mm. and the 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 key verse for dispensationalism is in Timothy that talks about rightly dividing the word of God. And they take that verse as meaning dispensations. The, the actual division of the word of God. So I did not know that. Wow. Oh, yeah, it's the key verse. If you ever ever anybody's ever been in Awana, that's the key verse. Because they get Second Timothy two fifteen. Or is it three sixteen? I can't I always get those two mixed up. But when so you have one dispensation, like uh, the dispensation of innocence, which is the garden. Well, Adam and Eve, when they when they sin, you know, the, the rules of the dispensation were to not eat of the tree. He broke the rule. They ate of the tree. And then a new dispensation comes. So so what happened before that, the eating of the tree, well, the, that that isn't in the the new dispensation, which is the dispensation of conscience. Right? Now there's new rules. And so this keeps happening in Scripture. After conscience, you have human government. That's after the flood. And then you have uh, 
with, uh, with Abraham, you have a dispensation of promise. It's Abraham. So everything that's going on before that, the people that lived in that world at that time, in the world, failing to keep the dispensation, those rules, are, are separated from people of other dispensations. Now this has led some in dispensationalism, a, a minority, to believe that you're actually saved, that your salvation in and of itself is by keeping these rules. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it's, I understand that there is a consistency in that. Now, most dispensationalists would completely deny that, that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. But, it, but if you're taking Scripture and you're dividing it up, and there's certain rules that if you are obedient to those rules, you're blessed by God. We can see how easy it is to for for them to move to that being their salvation. So there is there, I mean, they still see that God, and most dispensationalists, they still understand God is going to save his people through Christ, Christ and Christ alone. They see that being talked about in Genesis 3:15. They see Christ coming and and uh um, you know, saving us, and that that that's how we're saved. We're not saved through works, but you can you can see how the the Israelites under the uh, Mosaic covenant or the dispensation of law. I mean, they in and of themselves are treated differently than those of us Jew and Gentile in the dispensation of grace, which we're in now. So now we have the. The, the two peoples, Gentiles, everybody else, and Jews, that have come together because of Christ. But when the rapture happens, seven-year tribulation period, and then the dispensation of kingdom for a thousand years, that separation happens again. And it depends on which, you know, in the book I go through the different reiterations of dispensationalism and how they view that, because they're very different. Today, progressive dispensationalists understand that Jews and Gentiles in the kingdom will still live together, which is not the case in other in other forms of dispensationalism, earlier forms. But even though they'll live together, the the Israelites are always the Jews are always separate in in person. You know they're. There's no melding of the nations together with the Jews. We're all Christians, right? We're all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Israel is still considered Israel. The church is still considered the church. And even for eternity, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. That's what Ryrie was getting at, that in order to understand Scripture, unless you're looking through Scripture with your, with your Israel glasses on, understanding the differences, you're going to get it wrong completely. So uh, I think Kim Ritterbarger, um, I, th- I think the term he used was Gintu knives, that, that their hermeneutic is Gintu knives to the Bible, because they're always chopping it up. So they, so do they see it as one? The, the, it is the complete word of God from Genesis to Revelation, given by God uh, for his people. But when, when certain groups of people have more uh, connection 
to to scripture that uh, certain groups of Christians in the end were all saved by Christ. So certain groups of people who are saved by Christ have a connection to a certain portion of, of scripture for eternity that other p- Christians don't have. That's just not continuity. Yeah, so I've seen, um, I, I maybe brought this up the last time that that we had you on to talk about this, uh, but I knew a, a pastor out in the Pacific Northwest where he dealt a lot in his church, an evangelical church, uh, but then, you know, more so it was from outside of his church, but people kind of coming in from, from other churches in the area, but uh, this weird kind of development because of a, a, a hyper dispensationalism in the area, um, a very, you know, like, you know, the only books for us are the Pauline epistles uh, or, you know, certain epistles uh, and everything else, right. We can't read, I, you know, it was a pretty, a very firm, strong kind of hyper dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it seemed to lead to in a lot of people was this weird sense that if they really wanted to be close to God, they had to become like the Jews. And it, it actually led in many, and I'm not saying that this is what all dispensationalism does and not, not that at all. I, I know that most dispensationalists would obviously condemn this, but it did lead to many of uh, these people thinking, okay, well, I guess I need to follow um, the dietary laws and I need to do some of these other things. And, you know, a lot of them were wearing, you know, uh, when we would meet with them, they, you know, would wear uh, menorah necklaces and like just very strange, weird kind of stuff. Um, and there were, you know, I mean, there were, you know, uh, teachers that were kind of leading them in this direction, but it seemed like part of the, the desire for it was because they thought that they were kept out from really knowing God, like the chosen people of God, the Israelites would. And so they felt like they had to try to do this if they really wanted to get to know God. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely not the majority of dispensationalists. Right. Right. But these are, that's not uncommon to hear about. I mean, there are, there are a couple of cults out there right now that are, yes. are you know, they, it's, you can't call uh, Jesus, Jesus. It has to be Yeshua. Sure. You have to use a lot of Hebrew. Yeah. That's we not could dispensationalism. Do, right. We could do a whole nother, uh, we, and, and maybe someday will, uh, mm-hmm. of on this, the, the messianic Judaism, mm-hmm. which in almost a hundred percent of my experience are not people who are converts from Judaism mm-hmm. or ethnically Jewish, but are, uh, but are white guys like you and me. And for some reason trying to speak Hebrew and doing things like that. But so Rob, <laughs> what, what is, uh, uh, sorry to all of our, uh, messianic Jewish listeners, you know, love to have you on the show. Um, Rob, what is God's what is God's motivation for these um, continuing dispensations, these continuing tests? What what's the what is what is He doing in in history with these things? Why why would He break? Why would He do this? Why yeah, he, yeah. Why yeah. just right? Just like why? Yeah. Just like I asked, why the Abrahamic? Why are we doing? Why are we doing things through covenants? Why is He doing well, these these tests, the, these dispensations? The majority of the dispensationalists would say that God is testing mankind in many different ways, demonstrating to man that they cannot save themselves. Mm. So by, you know, uh, if man is given his conscience, one of the dispensations, uh, and they, they're going to fail, 
because they're, they're sinful. Uh, mankind is given uh, human government to rule them. Human government fails. They're not, they can't get their salvation through that. They can only get their salvation through Christ. Mm-hmm. So that same with the law, right? So even if I give you the law, you'll, you will fail the same, well, the same test. Even, even the dispensation of the kingdom. So you have the millennial kingdom where Christ himself is ruling on the throne from Jerusalem in his glorified body over his people. Uh, and at the end, there's this mass rebellion of people within the kingdom itself that try to overthrow him. So even in, the, even in a perfect environment that still has sinners in it, uh, people fail the dispensation. Wow. And then um, I think as I've as I've interacted with the we'll say the more progressive, the more modern forms of dispensationalism that right. The big the the really big thing is in at least in some sense, the two peoples. Right. Mm -hmm. Israel and the church. That distinction runs an exact. Right. I think there were older views that had a more problematic understanding of it the earthly the heavenly but this this view runs this distinction is without it there almost is no dispensation well Ryrie, that you know the quote you began with right that is one of the totally essential parts so um what is the what is the what is the yeah what's god's purpose in these two peoples um as they will exist through eternity through eternity well, apart from God having two peoples that he's worked with in the world and brought as considered his people, it's hard, and I don't have a, as good of an answer as I had for the last one, from, from sure. a dispensational point of view. Um, it, Israel, though, is the apple of God's eye, and mm. Israel will be Israel for eternity. And so it sometimes... Like, you were talking about Ryrie and progressives and progressive dispensationalism definitely has cleaned up a lot of the problems of dispensationalism. They listened to covenant people that were saying, what about this? What about this? Why are there sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? Things like that. Right. And they went, yeah, you're right. There shouldn't be. And so they cleaned up a lot of it and that, that's good. But when you go back to, uh, pre-Ryrie dispensationalism, and like you, you kind of mentioned this, where the church is actually considered God's heavenly people and will be in heaven with God for eternity. And Israel is God's earthly people, and they'll always be on earth. And so there, when you read, like uh, I'm thinking uh, Lucifer Schaefer and C.S. Schofield, um, even uh, John Welver, um some of these, uh, Dwight Pentecost, some of the great dispensational theologians. You have this idea that the church kind of becomes more special than Israel. Mm. They're, they seem to be more blessed because they're in heaven. And Israel is relegated to being on the earth for eternity. And and God, Christ himself is actually in heaven. So, so why isn't Christ with his people, mm. Israel? Why he's with these people, the church? It's really odd, but it, it definitely manifests itself within dispensationalists as 
as you guys have been talking about, this, this, this considering of ethnic Israelites as a higher people, a higher human. I mean, it's not, not yeah. a different species, but that they're, they're so special, that they're so blessed. And, you know, no, instead of looking at them as, well, they're, they're human beings that we should love, just like we should love any other human beings. And there's, right. you know, some are good and some are bad, just like every other nationality. It, they shouldn't be treated badly, but to consider them special just because they're Jewish, it, 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 it's not helpful. I think when I think about the answer to my own question as I was listening to you, I think part of it is this idea of, well, God can't go back on his promises, right? There have, they have to be a kind of a distinct group because God has made specific promises to them. And if you say, uh, if you deny that they'll have the land, that they'll have the, you know, all these kinds of things that there is. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, that's see to me that's a different question. Is why okay. will why will God still give? Like, why does there a future for Israel? Is is why why does why is God still dealing with two peoples instead of just having one people of God? Is what you're saying? Yeah. That and that's what dispensationalists will say is that well, God made these promises to Abraham. They can only be fulfilled within Israel, and so Israel has to be reconstituted in the millennial kingdom, because that's the only way God will actually fulfill his promises to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm struck is, by okay. whenever whenever I hear these, so I just think one of the most beneficial uh, things that you could do if you're listening to this, I think when you're trying to figure out, okay, how does, how does the Bible all fit together? What is, uh, how does the Bible describe the whole, the history of redemption? Um, I think one of the beneficial things you could do would be to take some time and go and read how the apostles apply the Old Testament, right? How do, how do they apply uh, yeah. these things from the Old Testament? And what you find is that they apply them as though they're a part of it, right? Like it's just, it's, it's all right there. Um, you know, for like I brought up uh, from Deuteronomy 30, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10 in a way where it's like, this is, this is talking about the gospel right now. You know, like it's, it's something that you can pick up and read. Um, it's what Jesus expected. He said, you know, he said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, like, how don't you know these things? How don't you understand what's happened and, and, uh, what, what all this means when, uh, you know, all of the scriptures are speaking about this. Um, and so this is just, I, I really think that one of the most beneficial things you could do is just go read how the apostles understood the old Testament. And I think it will just, it will force you to come to the point. I think if you're, if you're looking at it, uh, that they understood these things to be for the church, for us, a a part of, you know, our scriptures as God speaks to us. Mm. Yeah. Maybe Rob, as a, as a place to close, you could give us a, a helpful example, you know, one, maybe a helpful example of how the new Testament either does this or just a, how it, the new Testament helps us understand these uh, at least part of, of how, of how these things work together. If one comes to mind. Well, a quick example is the book of Hebrews, just the mm. whole book of Hebrews. Just yeah. Yeah. Um, right. when, you know, when I, I think one of the, one of the best examples is the fact that uh, Peter at the, at Pentecost 
quotes from Joel. And Joel is talking about the new covenant. He's talking about what the, what the Messiah is going to bring and what he's going to actually fulfill. And Peter says, this is it. This is being fulfilled in your very <laughs> presence. Yes. It, it, for, for classic dispensationalism, they would have to take that and put that in the millennial kingdom. Mm. And for progressives, they, I mean, they've cleaned that up. They understand that, okay, obviously, Peter's quoting Joel. He's very clear. You're going to lose the really, debate with Peter on this one. Yes. They should. But they don't see how, but that that's not alone. I mean, I'm giving one example. Right. But there's examples all throughout the New Testament talking about how the fulfillment of what was told to Abraham. This is Galatians. You know, Galatians 4 uh, that talks about this, that the promise wasn't made to seeds, meaning the many people of Israel. The, the promises weren't given to be fulfilled by the nation. Paul says it was given, these promises to Abraham were given to be fulfilled in one seed. And then he says, and if you don't know who that seed is, it's Christ. It, you, I don't know how, th this is what, why I'm no longer a dispensationalist. By reading that and, and reading that over and over again, looking at it, it finally just hit me. Oh, if I want to be a good literalist, I need to literally take what Paul is saying literally. The one seed is Christ and it's been fulfilled. Thank you, Rob, for joining us here on Restless and not coming on this episode to correct me. I'd like to remind everyone, we are giving away copies of Rob's books to our patrons, to people who review the show. So right now, if you want a chance at winning a book, review the episode. We will send you a sticker immediately and draw someone to win a book at the end of the month. Also, we're going to do the same thing with our patrons. We appreciate everyone supporting the show. Please review the show. That's the biggest way you can support us right now.